0: This is the BBC.
1: Hi, I know you're expecting Moneybox, but while they're away for August, you've got us looking after you.
0: He's Steve Bougiella, and I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, and this is Economics with Subtitles.
1: It's for people who maybe want to know a bit more about economics, but have been put off by all the jargon and the boring economists and the men in suits telling you to stop buying stuff that you love.
0: We hope you like it. Hello, and welcome to Economics with Subtitles,
1: your everyday guide to economics and why you should care. She's Aisha
0: Thomas Smith, and I present podcasts about economics. He's Steve. Bugajar? Bugajar? You know how to say it. It's Bougajar.
1: Steve Bouget. I'm a stand-up comedian with a degree in economics. We're here to hold your
0: hand as you tread tentatively into the tangled forest of economics.
1: With us at your side, you'll see the wood, you'll see the trees, and you'll see the point of all this economics business. This week,
0: our government is in debt. But who to? And how much? And how worried should we be? We will answer all these questions and more.
1: We're starting with a story about a letter from an Essex mum. I was briefly unchained from my studio shackles to find out all about it. Okay, wow, we have just walked into the National Archives and it looks like a five-star hotel or something. There's a huge water feature out the front, uh, big jets, of water going up, and there's ducks, there's ducks, and a little swan, and uh, a massive building. I wasn't expecting the archives to be this big, but I guess it's got archives of everything, so it makes sense. And uh, it's, it's the hottest day of the year, and I've worn jeans. So I'm looking forward to getting in there. Hopefully they've got aircon in the archives.
2: My name's Katie Fox. I'm a modern domestic record specialist here at the National Archives in Kew.
1: Okay, we've just gone through our security door. I feel like we're going into the depths of the archive.
2: This is one of our repositories where we store um, some of our documents. It's uh, temperature controlled to make sure the documents are safe.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's very cool. It's the hottest day of the year today, and this is
2: better than (laughs) aircon. So I've marked up. um, A particular letter. So um, it's from a mother um, in Essex, and it was written on the 15th of February, 1917. We need to be quite careful with it. I
1: mean, I'm not going to touch Um, it. I feel so nervous.
2: No, so we try and limit touching it as much as possible, and when we do, we need to have really clean hands and things like that. I
1: mean, the handwriting is very beautiful. Would you mind reading us out, please,
2: Kate? Yeah, no problem. So, um, dear sir, it is heartbreaking to read in the Daily Mail every day a request for money for the war loans when one has not any to give. As I have no money, I am hoping you can turn this bracelet into a bullet. Appreciating your efforts with Mr Lloyd George, believe me. Yours sincerely, A Mother.
1: So, this this ordinary person just wanted to donate, she didn't have that much money and just donated her jewellery to be made into bullets for the actual war?
2: Absolutely, yeah.
1: Would they have used the jewellery, do you
2: think? I don't know, potentially. So, other people that donated jewellery, it was returned by the Chancellor with a really lovely letter sort of saying that at this point the government can't ask people to make that sacrifice. But obviously, for this lady, they weren't able to return the jewellery.
1: So were the government asking the members of the public to send in the jewellery?
2: No, so there were. Um, this was an unofficial way that people were trying to help the war effort. There were loads of official schemes that people could get involved with, so people, for example, could buy national war bonds. Um, a bond was the government asking the people to lend them some money, so they would get the money back at a later date with some interest, so it's a loan rather than a gift.
1: So. They issued these, these war bonds and they used, they, they played on people's patriotism to to try and get them, them to buy these bonds.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So in another document that we hold, a committee on war loans for the small investor wrote that it is the motives of patriotism rather than self-interest that the government ought and is entitled to appeal. Um, so that was a, a committee that was set up to try and establish how the government was going to get this funding for the First World War.
1: And what did they decide to do? How did they actually go about convincing the country to give this this money?
2: They did loads and loads of things. So they printed thousands of leaflets, they dispatched cinema slides to over 2,000 cinemas, so people, when they were watching a film, would see these short slides, getting wow. them to donate. Um, there were posts on public transport and all sorts of things, so everywhere people would have gone, they would have seen these adverts. One of the most striking posters for me is a woman waving a Union Jack, and the slogan is fight with national war bonds. Now, women weren't able to fight on the front line, but for me, that poster is saying your contribution is as valid as fighting on the front line if you buy national war bonds.
1: So it was a huge campaign. Government was asking the the public to buy these bonds. And did the public respond?
2: Yeah, absolutely. National war bonds were... Quite a a consistent form of funding for the government, but there were other schemes as well.
1: So do you know how much interest was offered to these, these bonds?
2: The interest rate was 5%. That's
1: not bad. That's quite good. I want to buy some of these war bonds. The government actually only paid off some of these war bonds a few years ago, and apparently there are a few out there that still haven't been claimed. So do check down the back of your sofa and find a little war bond, maybe. We have with us today Victoria Bateman, who is an economist at the University of Cambridge. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for coming in. Um, You're going to help us get our heads around all of this stuff. Um, How much debt did the UK have going into World War One when that letter was written by the Essex Mum?
3: So debt was roughly 50% of GDP going into World War One. And then as we come out of World War One, it's getting on for about 200% of GDP.
1: Oh, wow. So the war really did cost us quite a lot.
3: Absolutely. OK, so how do our debt
0: levels now then compare with the war times?
3: So at the moment, debt is around 85% of GDP. So we're higher than we were going into World War One, but well under the level that we were when we were coming out of World War One. Now,
1: you keep quoting this uh, debt to GDP percentage. Why do we do that? Why are we talking about it as a percentage So, it allows
3: us to see the affordability of debt. So, essentially, we think about the nominal value of debt, how many pounds the country owes relative to what the country is producing in a given year. It's a bit like if you're an individual, if you look at the number of pounds that you owe relative to what you're earning each year.
1: Yes, that makes sense. So, if we earn a thousand pounds but we owe two thousand pounds Mm. that's bad
0: (laughs) good math that's really bad you've got yourself in a mess there but if you earn a hundred thousand pounds
1: and owe two thousand that's
0: fine Yeah, yeah, You can borrow some more. I can finally see why they've hired you. Yeah. Great. Insightful analysis like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cut straight through. (laughs) All right, so if GDP goes up then, Victoria, that's one way of improving on that measure of debt. Is that right?
3: So if GDP goes up, holding everything else the same, then debt to GDP should decline. That's right.
0: Okay,
1: so they don't actually have to pay any debt off. They just have to keep growing the economy.
3: Absolutely. So economic growth is absolutely essential to to bringing down debt.
1: Right. Now, I just did it myself. How... Useful is it comparing government debt to personal debt?
3: The UK state has been around for hundreds of years and we typically live to, what, 80 years old. So um, okay. so in terms of the of the UK state, it can borrow, can keep on borrowing year after year after year. By the time we die, we'd ideally like to have paid our, our debts back.
1: Oh, but because the government doesn't die, they, they can take up more money, basically.
3: Rolling on over the debt. Yeah.
0: I mean, we're lucky, millennials. Lucky we're them. dying in debt. We are dying in debt. Jolly. Okay. Keep it light. I know. Sorry. Sorry. I'm taking it to a dark place. (laughs) All right. So let's just clear one more thing up. So sometimes people get confused between the words deficit and debt.
3: So, with the deficit, we're talking about in a single year how much is the government spending versus how much is it earning in terms of tax receipts? Now, if it's spending more than it's earning in tax receipts, then it's in deficit. And in order to cover that deficit, the state has to borrow. And when it borrows, that then adds to the stockpile of debt that has accumulated from previous deficits in in history.
0: Right. I'm starting to see some of the wood. I'm starting to see some of the trees. Remember the forest thing?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I remember. It was good. there. Wood and trees.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it was good. All right. So we've had a chat about the war and a bit of death. But let's have a look at who the government actually owes money to these days. Can I have some quiz music, please? Ooh. All right. Hello, Chris Tarrant. Yeah, I know. Much more attractive. Uh, (laughs) Cool. So, we're going to play a game called Cut That Pie.
1: Wow. OK. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to get it. I'm excited. I don't know anything about this, by the way. They've kept this very secret from me.
0: Look, it's a pie. Oh, my word. It's an actual pie. Yeah, I know.
1: That's an actual pie.
0: Well, it's a tart.
1: A tart? It looks like a pie. Yeah, yeah. And a little tinfoil...
0: Here's a knife. I'm going to hand it to you handle first. Oh, thank you very much. There we go. So be careful with that. So, what you need to do... What kind of pie is this, by the way? I think it's a Bakewell tart. Right. Yeah. I'm
1: quite severely lactose intolerant. Is this going to be a problem?
0: Just don't put it in your mouth.
1: Yeah, well, I can't even touch the stuff. All right, let's see how it goes.
0: All right, so the pie represents the money that the UK government owes. You'll notice, Steve, that it's got four different labels stuck in it. They are Foreign Investors, the Bank of England banks and other financial institutions, and insurance companies and pension funds. Yes. So those are the four flags. So with this knife, you've got 30 seconds to cut the pie so that it accurately represents... Not now, don't cut it yet. So it accurately represents who the government owes money to. Yeah? Okay. Feel free to move the labels around. This is a literal
1: pie chart, is what we're doing It's a tart chart. Tart chart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't cut it yet. What a fun game this is. Okay, go, you've got 30 seconds. Oh, okay, right. So I think the biggest debt is probably overseas. So that's going to be a big... Proportion, so I'm going to do a big cut there. Oh, it's, so quite, foreign it's quite a firm. Yeah, yeah. Giving a you a bit firm, of resistance.
0: It's not a mushroom. It's quite a
1: firm task. Right. Um yeah. Okay, and I think probably banks. I think Bank of England probably has not that much because it's our bank and it. Why would they? So, Ten well, we seconds. Got 10 right. seconds. Right. So there, and then I'm going to say banks and other institutions have a small amount. Biggest amounts overseas, and then insurance has quite a lot of payments. Are the
0: labels in the right place? Yeah. For what you think? All right, Let me have a look. Let me have a look. Okay.
1: So, the, yeah, the biggest one's overseas, I think.
0: All right. So it looks like that is about, um, I want to say 40% there overseas. Yeah. Then you've got about 10% in the Bank of England. Mm-hmm. You've got about uh, 20% banks and other financial institutions, and then the remaining 30. Thirty. I can do it. Maths. Just got of have a degree.
1: Sorry, I just mansplained that.
0: Yeah, you did. We'll talk about that later. 30% insurance and other pension funds. Yes. yes
1: I reckon that's about right.
0: Well, let's have a look. So the correct answers were thirty-one percent insurance companies and pension funds. So that was that was that was right. Wasn't Incredible. Then? Victoria's clapping. So you Thank go. you,
1: Victoria.
0: Um, <laughs> overseas, though, was only twenty-eight percent. Ooh, that's yeah. a shame. So yeah, yeah, a Bank of England twenty-four percent. So wrong again there. Oh wow, that's a yeah. lot more than I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And banks and other financial institutions seventeen percent. Oh right. So you're kind of close on that one. Does that add up to a hundred? Uh, What's 31, add 28, add 24, 17? Victoria?
3: 100. That's <laughs> it.
0: Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> was...
3: Ignoring rounding errors.
0: <laughs> that was
1: so
3: wow, impressive. that was really I would impressive. I want to play that
1: game more. Can we just <laughs> name some numbers? And Victoria it... has to add it up.
3: Yeah, okay,
0: okay great. Um, but just to clarify, you did lose that yeah. game.
1: But luckily, I've not got a rash, and I can still speak.
0: <laughs> oh, thank the Lord. So, Victoria, could you help us make sense of our... Tart chart. Absolutely. Great. It looks like from the chart chart that most of the debt is actually owed in this country. Is
3: that true? That's right. That's right. So 28% of our debt is owed to countries uh, or people living overseas, which means that the vast majority is owed to um, people here in the UK.
1: Okay, so we sort of owe it to ourselves. Now, why are insurance companies why why do they own so much of our government debt?
3: Okay, so insurance companies and pension funds. So we've got to remember there that we make contributions to both of those types of financial institutions pretty regularly. So we pay our insurance premiums and we pay into our pensions, and what those financial institutions then have to do is to take those contributions or those premiums, invest them such that they're ready to either pay out if we make an insurance claim, or if we're talking about a pension fund, to be ready to pay out when we come to retire. Now, um, when it comes to investing, the key really is to diversify what you're investing in, so that you can try and limit the amount of risk that you're exposed to. So what you don't want to happen is you pay your insurance contributions every week, every month, every year. And then when you need to make a claim, the insurance company goes bust. Similarly, with your pension, you don't want to be paying in each year. You come to retire, pension company's gone bust and, and you're living off nothing. So insurance companies and pension funds need to be able to invest these contributions, but in a way that isn't Overly risky. And government bonds, British government bonds, are a relatively safe way of investing.
1: So from this tart chart, we can see that the actual the Bank of England owns quite a lot of our debt. But doesn't the government own the Bank of England. So are they are borrowing money off themselves? Like, I can't do that. I can't lend myself money. What's going on there? This is very <laughs> <rest of> confusing.
3: <laughs> so ultimately, you could say that the Bank of England is part of the public sector, part of the UK state. And so effectively, this is the state owing money to itself. And you know, the Bank of England did come to an arrangement with the Treasury in 2012, that meant that any interest the Bank of England was earning on UK government bonds was paid back to the Treasury. So they didn't take the interest receipts themselves. Oh, that's
1: very convenient, isn't it? My mind. Imagine that meeting.
3: But just with
1: themselves. Can, <laughs> can we waive the interest? Yes, you can waive the
3: interest. <laughs> so at the moment, British um, interest payments on UK debt are about two percent of GDP. It would be about two point seven percent of uh, GDP otherwise, if, if mm. there wasn't this favourable treatment between the Bank of England and the Treasury. But I, what I should say is that it's not really quite accurate to say that we shouldn't worry about this debt held by the Bank of England, because what, what the Bank of England has effectively done is bought that government debt, not directly from the government, but from the private sector, from banks, from financial institutions. And the reason it's done that is to try and pump money into the economy. So it's bought government bonds from private sector banks and financial institutions, replaced those with money, so pumping money into the economy in an effort to try and stimulate the economy since the 2008 global financial crisis. Now the Bank of England's intention is as the economy rebounds, as it recovers, then it will then sell those government bonds back into the private sector, pulling that money out of the economy that it's previously pumped in to avoid that excess of money at some point, um, pushing up inflation to too higher level.
1: So, that's who the government owes money to. Now let's talk about how much is too much government debt. Um, Now, Victoria, this is Economics with Subtitles. So we are now going to play you a few clips. And could you please provide the subtitles and help us work out what is going on? Here is the first one from back in 2011.
0: First Greece, then Ireland, today Portugal. All of them countries that did not convince the world that they could pay their debt two of them countries with smaller budget deficits than Britain. Now, all of them being bailed out at huge costs to their populations. Today, of all days, we can see the risks that would face Britain if we were not dealing with our debts and paying off our national credit card.
1: I remember this. When politicians kept warning us that the UK was going to end up in a debt crisis like Greece, Um, how comparable has the UK situation been to those countries that needed a bailout?
3: So in terms of debt to GDP, which of course is our measure of how affordable debt is, and it's how we compare debt across countries, then the UK is a little above the average for European Union countries. But the problem with debt is it can you can get into a vicious cycle quite quickly. So for people to want to continue to hold your government's debt, and at interest rates that are low enough to make it Affordable year on year, then internationally and here in the UK, you need investors to have confidence in your government.
0: These countries that we've talked about, uh, they don't all have their own currencies, but obviously we do. Does
3: that play a role here? Yes. So, so interestingly, I mean, if you look historically, if a government does end up in a situation where it's finding it difficult to issue bonds or to roll over bonds and repay its debt, then it always has the emergency option of printing money. In that clip,
0: um, George Osborne mentions the national credit card. And obviously, we've talked a little bit already about the differences between government and personal debt. So public purse, national credit card, these kind of statements, are they useful in understanding uh, government debt?
3: As we've said, I mean, when government borrows, it is a a little bit different to uh, when an individual borrows. But that doesn't mean that governments will always have an easy ride.
1: OK, but there's no actual national credit card. Like, Philip Hammond doesn't sat there with a visa on his desk. Yeah. It's probably an Amex, isn't it, to it's be fair? if There was price. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Amex. Yeah. Picking up some air miles. Imagine the air miles you get on that, wow. on a national credit card. We've got one more clip for you. Um, listen to this.
2: We spend
1: £50 billion pounds on debt interest every year. Payments to people we've borrowed from. That's more than the NHS pay bill. It's more than our school's budget. It's more than we spend on defence. So if we had no debt, instead of paying interest, we could spend that money on hospitals and schools right now. That sounds like a really good thing, doesn't it?
3: Well, if we have no debt, then I would say there are um, two big issues. An issue of fairness and an issue of what we might think of as economic efficiency. So firstly, the issue of fairness. Where you're spending in a way that benefits future generations, such as by building infrastructure in your economy, creating greater prosperity, then it makes sense to pass on some of the costs to future generations. So to run a deficit today to borrow to cover that deficit and to have future generations pay off some of that debt. And the second reason is economic efficiency, that if a government is restricted to only spend what it's earning in terms of tax receipts, then that directly limits its ability to invest in things that will help us in the long term, such as science, uh, research and development, and, and so on.
0: So we've been talking about how much debt is too much, but I've been hearing about how not so long ago in the U.S. they were actually thinking about having no debt at all.
4: I'm Diane Lim and I worked for the Clinton administration as a senior economist on the Council of Economic Advisers staff. At the end of the Clinton administration, the economy was doing really, really well. It was a fun time to be working for the president and to be writing his final economic report of the president so this was a really easy happy story to tell at the end of the 1990s into 2000 because economic growth was really strong income inequality had actually gone down president clinton's policies had turned the budget outlook around from record setting deficits as a share of gdp to surpluses so it was a really happy story, so I felt like my job was pretty easy.
0: Ah, okay. So most of the time when a government's in deficit, the pile of debt gets added to every year. But as you said, you guys were um, in surplus. So surplus after surplus means, it means at some point, obviously, the debt would, would have been paid off completely. So that
4: sounds good. That's right. We could see that over maybe the next 10 to 12 years, projections indicated that we could conceivably pay down the entire public debt, which was sort of shocking. So we have to think about what this means to actually pay down or pay off the public debt. And so we were working on that issue as well in a separate section, a subsection of that chapter of Clinton's final economic report. And what was that section called? Well, that section was called Life After Debt, D-E-B-T, we talked about, well, you know, we have to think about this because government debt is held in the form of treasury bonds. And so when the public sector is borrowing, that provides an investment for the rest of the economy, the rest of the global economy. And U.S. treasury debt is considered the benchmark investment globally in that it's considered the world's safest investment, that you know that the U.S. government and the U.S. economy has the capacity to honor its interest payments on the debt and to eventually have the capacity to pay down the principal on that debt. So the story in Life After Debt was we may not want to pay down the entire public debt Even if we can, and even if a lot of paying down of the debt would be good for all Americans in the economy, paying down all of it would probably be bad for the global economy, that we should always have treasury bonds out there as a safe investment.
0: Why should the US care then that people in other countries might
4: not have this safe asset to invest in? The entire world is connected and reliant on each other because we're such a global economy. If you hold U.S. Treasury debt, then that is a certain stream, a reliable stream of low interest rate, relatively low returns, but it's a very safe asset. It's not like investing in corporate equity, right, in in stocks. It's the opposite of stocks that fluctuate in value. When you are a company, an individual, or a government holding U.S. Treasury debt, you can count on a very reliable, steady stream of low returns on that asset. And if we got rid of Treasury debt, we would eliminate that very safest form of investment for the world. And what kind of reaction did you get when that report was published? So we didn't publish the report. And I think a lot of the White House reviewers thought that was a very hard issue a confusing issue to talk about. You just spent all this time talking about how great it was to pay down the debt. And now you're saying it won't be good if we pay it all off and that some debt is good. Okay, so Victoria, what does that story tell us then
0: about the role that government debt plays in the wider global economy?
3: That it is that availability of safe assets in the form of UK or US government bonds that makes life easier for insurance companies, for pension companies and so on.
1: Okay, so maybe if there was no government debt, our pensions wouldn't have a safe place to put the money.
3: To some extent, that's right. There would, there would have to be a search for other safe types of things to invest in. And, you know, in a capitalist economy, which we are, we have this continued creative destruction. You don't know what the future is. You don't know what companies are going to be the next big thing. A company that's big today could be, you know, could end up as nothing in 10, 20, 50 years time. So there is always risk when you're investing in private sector assets. And because government bonds of um, mature, well, established. Countries like the UK and the US are seen as safe. That enables people to diversify their investments in a way that can create a better return risk trade-off.
1: So the US was thinking about what might happen if it did pay off its debt. Is the UK anywhere near paying off its debt?
3: So things have changed quite dramatically in the last 10 years. I mean, if you look at where debt to GDP was in the UK before the global financial crisis, we were around about the 40% figure. And now within 10 years, we're, we're more than double that. So one of the things that's happened in the UK is because the economy has been in the doldrums, we've been running deficits year on year. And so those have added to the national debt. But e- even once our economy Uh, recovers from what's happened recently, there are longer term pressures that look like they're edging us in the direction of increasing uh, debt to GDP. So the Office for Budget Responsibility has published their latest fiscal sustainability report looking 50 years ahead. And they're projecting that in 50 years time, UK debt to GDP will be not far off 300%. So
1: it's going to more than triple? That doesn't sound good.
3: And there are two two real factors that are driving that. One is the ageing population. Obviously, the older people are in the economy, the less taxes are being paid and the more spending in terms of health um, costs and so on. And also non-age related health costs, so based on improvements in medicine that make uh, health treatments uh, more costly, also increasing spread of chronic diseases. So, really, costs surrounding healthcare are the big reason that's pushing up this debt to GDP. Um, thank you very
0: much, Victoria Bateman
3: from the University of
0: Cambridge. So, when the government needs more money than it has to cover public spending, it gets into debt.
1: The government actually borrows the money from its own people by issuing government bonds. Pension funds, insurance companies and others buy these
0: up because they are such a safe investment. Comparing government debt with personal debt is usually not very helpful. The two work in very different ways.
1: And if you want to help the government pay the Brexit divorce bill, why not send the Chancellor your brooch? Coming up next time on Economics with Subtitles. When stuff getting cheaper is a bad thing... My Baked Bean Habit and what it says about the price of stuff.
0: And The Sex Lives of Venezuelans. Ooh,
1: that's next time on Economics with Subtitles.
0: Your everyday guide to economics and why you should care.
1: Economics with Subtitles was presented by Aisha Thomas-Smith and me, Steve Bougiello.
0: It was produced by Simon Mabin and Phoebe Keane. If you liked it, tell your mates.